So just on behalf of the teaching team, I want to say a big thank you to Joseph for being here tonight. And me personally, for him choosing my talk night. <laughs> Get a pass for this evening. So thank you for all of your questions. Just to say there were a lot. There was a veritable blizzard of bits of paper in the basket. So I know we're not going to get time to cover all of them tonight. We teachers can try to follow up with some that we don't get to in the morning reflections over the next few days. If some of them feel a bit more urgent, you might bring them to your practice teachers or to Shelley. And some of them are a little more themed around practice in daily life, so we'll, we'll save those ones for closer towards the end of the retreat. So I've got a list here of all the questions that came in. Uh, a lot of them began with a lot of gratitude for Joseph. <laughs> so just to save time, I'll read one representative <laughs> gratitude, and then you can assume that all the... <laughs> The rest of them had a similar preface, okay? So it says, I wanted to share my deepest gratitude for all you've done to bring the Dharma to the West. If it weren't for you, I would not have encountered these teachings, and they have profoundly changed my life in such a positive way. So that was a pretty common theme. Okay, ready for the first one? <laughs> so, Let's see. <laughs> well... The Four Noble Truths start with suffering. So I thought the first one says, Dear Joseph, you have said, quote, don't waste your suffering. Can you please elaborate on what you mean? Mm. Yes, this is one of my new favorite mantras. Uh, <clears throat> and it came about really out of my own practice being on retreat and just dealing with the same things that you will deal with. You know, sometimes it's going really smoothly and sometimes things are coming up either in the meditation process itself or just things from our life experience and unresolved difficulties where we're still caught in something. And at a certain point in my practice, um, I really developed a very keen interest in understanding the causes of suffering in my own mind. Because we can't control outer circumstances uh, very much. But we are completely responsible for our own minds. And if there's suffering in the mind, there's something going on that's causing it, which is, of course, the first two noble truths. What I found interesting is that very often the habits we have when we're facing either mild or even quite intense suffering, uh, very often there's just a habit of drowning in it and ruminating about it and going over and over and not leading any place. And at other times, there can be a tendency to blame either other people or a situation, and it's their fault that I'm suffering. That's wasting one's suffering. Because as Ajahn Chah once said, that's just suffering that leads to more suffering. So not wasting the suffering is actually turning the attention inward and, and taking interest 
what's going on in my mind that is the cause of this suffering. And there's always something. It might be we're attached to things being a certain way and they're not the way they like we like it to be. Or there's resistance to something. Or we're misperceiving something. So the suggestion is to actually have these times of unease, distress, suffering, pique your interest rather than it be a problem. Because I found that some of the most interesting insights come from that really direct investigation into the patterns in the mind in those moments that are the cause of that distress. Um, so it's really transforming. You know, and, and I don't know if you'll quite be at the point of saying, oh good, there's suffering. <laughs> Let me take a look at it. <laughs> well, you can leave off, oh, that's good, but don't leave off let me take a look at it. Because that's really where the freedom is going to be found. Um, and uh, it's very impactful. You know, because at that point, the Four Noble Truths are not theoretical. You know, it's not Buddhist philosophy. We're, we're in the midst of it. And we can really begin to develop a deep insight and, and see the potential for freedom within our own mind. Um, so that's that's what's meant by that. Don't waste your suffering. <laughs> Thank you. So there were a few that are loosely themed around <clears throat> anatta or not self, and I thought to just read you three or four, and then you can <clears throat> hopefully just pick out what <clears throat> what strikes you. So one is this, I've been discussing the. Something. <laughs> I mean, it's about investigation. I've been discussing investigation with my interview teachers. <clears throat> What's the relationship between investigation and active or analytical, analytical thinking? Can they coexist in the process of insight? And then the second part is, are noting and feeling into the experience enough to get out of the surface, to dismantle the sense of a separate self and penetrate deep truths like anatta and shunyata. So that's one set of questions. The other is, would you please share some practices for deepening our realization of anatta? And then the next one, what does uprooting greed and aversion have to do with the dissolution of the self? For example, isn't just wanting to scratch an itch, nature? And then lastly, if we all share one awareness, why is that awareness... This is that the awareness only knows one individual's nervous system and thoughts and emotions. It seems this localization has a lot to do with the illusion of a separate self. So I don't know if anything strikes you. <laughs> I'm too old for four questions in a row. <laughs> Just anatta, anatta. Just simplify it. Anything in the terrain of self and not self. Where to begin? Okay, first just to frame two general uh, meanings or, or manifestations of anatta. Uh, 
Uh, one is, which you're very familiar with, of course, is just the understanding of no self, that in the midst of this whole mind-body process, the ongoing flow of mind-body elements, there's no one core unchanging element. That's the I. That's the self. Really, the, the word self is a designation for the process of change. So then we can use the word self and all the conventional language that we use of I and you and other. And so all of that's fine if we're not deluded into thinking that it's referring to something real in itself, something substantial that's there, that, that's <clears throat> the core being of who I am. Realizing that the terms, this terminology, is a designation. And I'll I'll give you a simple example. I've been using this for years, uh, which may just illustrate it a little more clearly. You know, if you you are sitting by the side of a river, so we we use the term river, and people know what river means. But what actually is a river? The river is the flow of water. And we use the term river as a designation for the flow of water. It's not that river, as a noun, refers to something in and of itself apart from that flow of water. That's that's all it is. It's a designation for something. Self is a designation. Another example I use is rainbow. You know, a rainbow appears in the sky, we all delight in it. You know, it's beautiful. But what is a rainbow? It's an appearance when certain conditions come together of light and moisture and air. And if the conditions are right, a rainbow appears. But a rainbow is not a thing in itself. It's simply an appearance of certain conditions coming together. So, basically, we're all rainbows. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) How sweet. (laughs) We're we're an appearance. (laughs) Joseph is an appearance of the physical elements, all the mental factors, the different states of consciousness, you know, they're all arising in a certain relationship, in a certain pattern, and we call the pattern Joseph. But then we fall into the delusion of thinking that there's a Joseph, I don't know, somehow separate from this process of impersonal changing elements. So just recently... I was reading a book that highlighted for me, uh, given that self is just a concept, just a designation, why are we so fooled by it, fooled by this designation? Because it, it has a powerful hold on everybody. You know, we have this strong sense of being someone. So I was reading this book. It was actually... 
kind of science-minded book, uh, and I could barely understand it, but the few concepts that just jumped out at me, it was talking about complexity theory and emergent properties. So an emergent property is something, it's basically saying that the whole is greater than the sum of its parts. Take a simple example, you know, a car. And you put all the parts of the car, you know, if it's still on the assembly line or something, you put all the parts, that's really what constitutes the car. But it's not quite a car. You know, it doesn't go anyplace. It doesn't move. But you put these elements together in a certain way, and the emergent properties of a car show themselves. We get into it and drive. So when I read this, I realized that, yes, self is an emergent property of these mental physical elements. Right? If you put the, all these parts together in a certain way, what emerges is what we call self and relating as separate human beings and just our conventional understanding. And it just kind of a light bulb went off for me. And, oh, well, that's why it's so seductive, because there is a certain level of reality to the notion of self as an emergent property. But as one Tibetan uh, teacher expressed it, yes, the self is real, but not really real. <laughs> and I think that captures it. You know, so it is real, and you know, we live our lives you know, in, that, in that way of relating. So it's not, not only is it important, something we all do is just live in that realm, but we think it's really real. Because most people, unlike a car, which a lot of people have disassembled, very few people have taken the time or undertaken the discipline. Okay, what are really the constituent parts which together emerge in what we call self or relate to as self? And it's on that deeper level that we begin to really experience the three characteristics and the Four Noble Truths, because we see all of these different elements are momentarily arising and passing, and there's no substantial reality to them. The beauty of the practice, in terms of how we live our lives, is that the more we've investigated and explored the basic elements, the constituent parts that make up what we call self, and see their insubstantial, impersonal nature. And here's where the understanding of non-self comes in. The more we see that, and this is exactly what you're doing here, you know, over all these weeks, then we can live in the world of the emergent reality, but not be so attached to it. 
because we understand on a deeper level that the processes involved are all impersonal, following their own laws. They're ungovernable. And this ungovernable is another word which many people don't realize is also a description of anatta. And it's ungovernable in the sense that all of the elements are following their own laws, just like there are laws of chemistry or physics. So they're following their own laws. They're not subject to our will. So I could say, Joseph, I decided not to die. Okay? (laughs) It's ungovernable in that sense. This body is following its own laws. It's not subject to my will. Now, this doesn't mean that things are chaotic. Because when we understand the laws governing how things unfold, then if there's a desired goal or an aspiration... It's not simply to hope for it or to wish for it or to pray for it. It's to understand the lawful process of what conditions lead to that result. And then we can align ourselves, be in harmony with those conditions. I mean, there's just everything is an example of this, but sometimes I think. Okay, so the law of gravity, you know, it's a law of science. And yet we sent a rocket to the moon. Well, because there was an understanding of the laws which determined the gravity of holding it down and what's needed to overcome the force of gravity. So it's all lawful, but not under our control. It's not just according to our will. And that's where the wisdom factor is so essential in our lives. If we want to be happy, if we want to be at peace, if we want to be compassionate and loving, it's not enough just to wish it. You have to come here and sit for six weeks or three months. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's really what you know, we're all doing. It's just coming to a deeper and deeper understanding of what leads to what. And then we can align ourselves with that lawful process. So all of this is just the, you could say, the manifestation or the realization of the selfless nature, the impersonal nature. Uh, And yet, we can relate conventionally in the world understanding that there is a self as an emergent property, the sense of self as an emergent property. So it's not, it's not that we're throwing that out. It's just to, to understand its place. Does this make sense? Because this little, this little rap on emergent properties is new. <laughs> I just recently read the book, but it's just so... It just seemed to fit so well, you know, and it helped me to understand why why the notion of self is so seductive, you know, and why basically the world just operates 
on that level. But the problem is, as I mentioned, it's real, but not really real. So I don't know how many of those questions <laughs> this covered. Quite a few. Thank you. There's a kind of allied one about wise discernment. And it says, can you explain and advise how wise discernment is developed? I'm often confused whether action is skillful or unskillful for this being with its limitations and conditions. Wait, say the last part again. I'm often confused whether an action is skillful or unskillful for this being with its limitations and conditions. I guess ignorance. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is for me one of the tremendous blessings and gifts of the Buddhist teachings because if we really were trying to sort all this out in our own minds I mean it's hard enough just being with five breaths (laughs) but trying to really sort out all of the different mental factors and how they work and how they relate to one another it's just an indication when, when you're familiar you know in some depth with the Buddhist teachings There's not even any one word to describe it. It's like it's brilliant and profound and comprehensive, and so it's amazing. So we've just been given this gift as a framework for the investigation. So the Buddha laid out pretty simply, and this is actually part of the Satipatthana Sutta, you know, the foundations of mindfulness. And one of the meanings of mindfulness, of the word sati, you know, as we know, it, it mostly is translated as mindfulness, but the root meaning of the Pali word has to do with remembering. And so we could say, yes, it's remembering the present moment, but in the description of sati, it's also remembering what is skillful and what is unskillful. So this is one of the applications in our practice of sati, of mindfulness. So then, how do we discern what's skillful, what's unskillful? The Buddha really simplified it for us. He said, there are three wholesome and three unwholesome roots of all skillful and unskillful actions. So greed, hatred, ignorance is unwholesome. It's an unskillful mind state, leads to suffering. Non-greed or generosity, non-hatred, metta, non-delusion or wisdom is skillful, which leads to peace, leads to freedom. So that at least is the beginning way of discerning, assessing. We're having certain thoughts. And so related to thoughts but it has a slightly different nuance, is really really becoming attuned to one's motivations. Because we can really see these wholesome and unwholesome roots in the motivations behind our actions. And it may reveal itself in thought. right? So we may have certain thoughts about it, but the motivation actually 
in my experience, it seems to come from someplace deeper than a thought. It takes a lot of... um, It takes a lot of honesty to really look carefully at one's motivations with discernment and just to acknowledge, oh, is this this just greed? You know, is it kind of an unhealthy desire or clinging or grasping or attachment? Is this coming out of aversion or not wanting or fear or hatred? Is it coming out of confusion or ignorance? Well, the opposite. You know, is it motivated by generosity or love or wisdom? So even just having that very simple framework can be a doorway to this wise discernment where, where we actually are seeing uh, what is wholesome, what is unwholesome. There's a lot of subtlety involved in this, though. So I'll just give one example of because the Buddha had such a beautiful image One time I was teaching at a, uh, I was teaching a retreat at a Trappist monastery in Snowmares, Colorado. It was a very liberal abbot, and you know, so they invited me to come and teach the meditation. And just before the retreat I was giving, there was some kind of seminar, and it was more kind of psychological-based, something or other. But one of the things they said that had come up in that previous seminar in dealing with emotion, uh, the comment was, the teaching was to honor your anger. And I thought, hmm, <laughs> honor your anger. So from the perspective of the Buddhist teaching, I just tweaked it a little bit. It's not so much that we should honor our anger. Anger is an unwholesome mind state. However, we can honor the fact that it's there. Right? So we're actually seeing it, take responsibility for it. We're not pushing it away. We're not pretending that we're not angry. We're honoring the fact that it's there. But then we want to become mindful of it so as not to be caught by it. However, we often are caught by it. And this is the image the Buddha used. Anger with its poisoned source, anger with its poisoned root and honeyed tip. We're seduced by it very often. Anger's a powerful emotion. You know, it's like a lot of energy, and we often feel strong when anger is present. And sometimes the anger is telling us something important. So sometimes there's a message in the fact that the anger is arising. But we want to take the miss. Maybe something is really unjust or wrong and, you know, needs a response. And our first impulse might be anger. And then we can get caught up by it, feel, yeah, 
this is right. The honeyed tip. But we could take the message in terms of, okay, what's this situation and what needs to be done and not get caught in the energy you know, and in the motivation of anger, which is an unwholesome mind state. But that's what I mean, the discernment. Sometimes we really have to look carefully uh, to see what's what. Another example of just discerning what's wholesome and unwholesome. And this is... uh, I think this is just a super common experience of people very often conflating love and attachment. You know, and I've just spoken with so many people, you know, over the years. And the, the common refrain is, of course, if I love somebody, I'm going to be attached. It, because I think most people have not really looked carefully at these two mind states, these two emotions. And so they become conflated. So there's a wholesome mind state and an unwholesome mind state kind of enmeshed with one another. It becomes really interesting to investigate, you know, when you're feeling love, what does that feel like? So you really... You're really bringing mindfulness to that emotion. Okay, when you're most loving, what's the energy? What's the feeling? In my experience, it's like it's like a generosity of the heart. It's this. What's attachment? It's this. Right? It's contracting. It's holding on. And then you look at the consequences of the two. What are the consequences of the feeling of love? Usually it's something beautiful. What are the consequences of the feeling of attachment? Fear, insecurity, uncertainty. So isn't it strange that we just think they're inextricably woven together? But it's because we just have not taken the time again, in this very precise way, to discern, this discernment, what's skillful, what's unskillful. Uh, So this is a really important part of our practice. One list. (laughs) Every, every, Every question could be a whole Dharma talk. Unless, unless you were born a saint, most likely in our various responses to things, whether it's things within ourselves or to other people or situations, very likely our motives will be mixed. It's very unlikely, again, unless you happen to be a saint, that your motives are always 100% pure. I have so many examples of this. <laughs> just one story, which some of you may have heard. I tell it over the years. 
So I was on a self-retreat, and I was reading uh, just some of the Buddhist, uh, the suttas. And I came across a story in the suttas that I thought would make a great story for Sharon, Sharon Salzberg, my colleague and friend, who's writing a book. I said, oh, that's going to be a great story for Sharon's book. And then the very next thought in my mind was, no, I want to keep this story for myself. <laughs> because for a Dharma teacher, a good story is like gold. <laughs> you know, no, I'm going to keep this for myself. And then I thought, no, that's, that's clearly just unwholesome. <laughs> you know, that's just greed, attachment. So then I thought, okay, I'll give her the story. But I'll tell her what I went through so she appreciates the fact that <laughs> I gave her the story. So my mind was just going like this. And at a certain point, I asked myself, Joseph, in all of this, where is the purity of motive here? And I realized it was there in the very first moment. You know, that very first impulse, yeah. So this is to say that, and this is, obviously a very simple example. But often we do have mixed motives and a lot of different kinds of thoughts come in. But if we have this quality of discernment and we're, we're really watching our minds you know, and our motivations, we can see and then not get judgmental about you know, all the unwholesome ones, but we can return to that moment, oh yeah, that was a wholesome thought, just give. So in this discernment, I I tell this story because it's really important to be honest about the range of our own motivations. Because if we're not honest about it, we're not going to see it. And if we don't see it, we may very well be acting on the unwholesome motivations. Um, So do you see how interesting all of this is? I mean, it's really kind of illuminating our lives. Thank you. So maybe um, that ties into a question about skillful mind states on retreat. Could you please say a bit more about how to practice when the hindrances are absent? So far when it happens, in brackets, not all that often, I note that they are absent, I enjoy it, and I try not to get attached. Wondering what you suggest. Yeah, so... Uh, two things. One, um, I would be quite interested and mindful in not simply seeing the absence of the hindrances, but what mind states are there in their absence. So it might be calm. It might be concentration. It might be renunciation, you know, or um, there might be feelings in the absence of aversion or anger. It might be feelings of love or peace. Or, so there are a lot of positive mind states which are there in the ap- when the hindrances are absent. Why it's important to begin to at least in some way, recognize what these positive mind states are 
because they too are not to be clung to, right? And so the positive mind states, as well as the hindrances, we want to be mindful of peace or calm in that very mindful way where we're experiencing it but not identifying with it and not holding on to it and not being attached to it. And of course, this is, this is the role of mindfulness. But it helps to actually be very precise about the mind state because it's very easy to fall into, oh, this feels good. You know, we're just kind of hanging out and enjoying it, which it's definitely more enjoyable than when the hindrances are there. But attachment to, to wholesome mind states is no less problematic than attachment to unwholesome mind states. Right? And so we want to we want to be developed. And this is really the in an expansive sense of the word. Uh, this is really the manifestation or uh, the development of equanimity. Pleasant, we're we're just seeing. The mind is non-reactive. But just just to show you how deeply conditioned our, our assessments are of these different mind states, Suppose you're not on a silent retreat now in this example, but you're home, you're sitting, and you're sitting for an hour, and you know maybe there were a lot of hindrances or discomfort in the body, or and then you get up and you know somebody asks you, "How was your sitting?" Oh, a terrible sitting. You know my body hurt, and my mind was restless, and all this. Or maybe you had a really peaceful sitting. You know, and then somebody asks you, "How was your?" Oh, great sitting! You know, the mind was calm; it was quiet. No, <laughs> that assessment is completely wrong, because it all depends on how mindful we were of whatever it was. Because, oh, if we had this really peaceful sitting, but we were just immersed in it and attached to it and wanting it to continue, the assessment of that being a good sitting is incorrect. And if struggling with hindrances, but you were actually being mindful of the hindrances and investigating them, that would be a good sitting, if we, if we want to use those terms, you know, or assessing. So again, the mindfulness of these states when the hindrances are absent is really important and often overlooked. We're so grateful to be free of the hindrances for a while. It's like, okay, so let me just sit and enjoy this. Um, So there's one very simple phrase in the suttas that comes up again and again, and it can be your reference point. where the Buddha talks about liberation through non-clinging. That's 
that's really what you're practicing. You know, there are a lot of tools, you know, and little techniques and all that, but all of them are in the service of not clinging. And so it's really good just to remind yourself of what you're actually doing here. It's not to have some special state or this or that. It's to not cling to whatever is arising. So just to, what's what's the expression? To hammer the point home? (laughs) So there's another teaching of the Buddha, which is really, it's a really strong teaching. He said, as long as there's attachment to the pleasant and aversion to the unpleasant, liberation is impossible. It's a pretty high bar, you know. When it's, and we can just watch, you know, whether in our just our regular meditation or our daily lives, it's almost like we're hardwired. Of course, I want what's pleasant, and of course, I don't want what's unpleasant. I mean, it's so deeply conditioned, and that's why it takes really a special circumstance, like a retreat, where you can. Devote yourself, you know, to this much more subtle understanding of what's arising, and practice. And, and we do get moments. There, there are definitely, and sometimes more than moments, when the mind is really equanimous, pleasant, unpleasant. The mind is non-reactive. So, a little mantra that has helped me a lot, because this takes practice. You know, this this is because there's a deep conditioning in us. So just a, a mantra that I find helpful for myself is it's okay to feel the unpleasantness. It's okay to feel it. Because all the conditioning in our mind is it's not okay. <laughs> you know, we don't like it, we want to get rid of it. So just as the counterpoint to that habit of mind it just reminds us, okay, if there's pain in the body, can I settle into it? Can I relax into it? Can I just explore what that experience is like? And the same thing with the pleasant. You know, to be able to be with it without the attachment or the wanting it to continue. Or... So then we're really getting to the, the profound depths of the practice. Um, so it's not, it's not an insignificant thing that you're doing here. You know, it's really addressing just some of our deepening, deepest conditioning and the cause of so much suffering in our lives. Because if we're attached to the pleasant and averse to the unpleasant, we live very defensive lives. You know, we're always trying to protect ourselves. Okay, we have a little bit of pleasantness, and let me just hold on to that and keep everything unpleasant away. It's not a very fulfilling way to live. But it's challenging. And that's why it takes practice. So maybe that folds into a couple of questions that are around the theme of maintaining momentum. So one says, 
Have you experienced a steady stream of insight in your 50 years of practice? Or have there been dry spells without insight? Can you share some recent insights? And then the other one, how have you maintained resolve on long retreat? How have you addressed doubt about the effectiveness of practice, especially when it seems so convincing? I think when the doubt seems so convincing. Okay, I'll just start with that last one because (laughs) doubt, of all the hindrances, doubt is the most problematic. Because with all the others, the mind... The mind's in the ballpark, you know, with whatever the object is. We may be relating to the experience through the filter of desire or aversion or the mind's restless, you know, and running around it. But we're kind of... At least we're in the arena with what's happening. With doubt, we're not even... We're not even in the arena anymore. You know, we're just... We've removed ourselves from the playing field. So that's why it's really obstructive. Doubt can really hold one's practice if we don't learn how to work with it, and we can learn to work with it. The reason doubt is so seductive, and it it can be really seductive, is because it comes in this very wise-sounding voice. (laughs) You know, this voice in the mind. Oh, you know, the fact's not going, so maybe I should take a little rest. Or, oh, these teachers, what they know? You know, or this practice, you know, I've been doing it and doing it, and I don't seem to be getting any place. So it's just this wise-sounding voice that seduces us. And we're not recognizing it as doubt. The miracle cure for doubt is recognizing it when it arrives. Oh, that's just doubt. That's the doubting mind. So in that moment, we're no longer identified with that wise-sounding voice. You know, it's no longer fooling us. And we're seeing it for what it is. So that's just a a preface to uh, the other parts of the question. But I wanted to emphasize it because you do want to keep an eye out. And and each one of us may have very specific kinds of doubts. You know, it may be doubt about the practice. It may be doubt about your own ability due to the practice. It would be really helpful if doubt is one of the hindrances that comes up for you from time to time to get really precise about the particular doubt that is seductive for you. you know, so you become very familiar with it because then when it arises, oh, there you are, there's doubt. Uh, so it's really helpful just to work with that uh, as a hindrance. And it's, it's very workable once it's clearly seen. One of, the, one of the biggest illusions as people begin their practice, and I think you have 
seen through this by now. But often people, you know, begin their practice with the idea that it's just going to get better and better and better and better and better and better better till we're fully enlightened. (laughs) Sorry, folks. There are just endless ups and downs and ups and downs and flat periods, you know, where we're practicing and we just think nothing is going on. This is normal. This, this is how it unfolds. And what's, what we learn over time, and you probably have some inkling of this already, is that even with all the ups and downs, the slope of the curve is going up. Right? So and from sitting to sitting, or day to day, you know, the mind's concentrated and clear and feel great. Other times, may feel like we've never practiced before. And then the next day or the next sitting, again, you know, the mind is uh, quite mindful. So you go through these enough times, but after a period of practice, you realize, yeah, after many days of practice or years of practice, even though there are still ups and downs, but we're in a very different place. You know, the ups and downs are happening on a different, I don't know what the right term would be, but a different level. One of the things that comes from many years of practice is that we get much more equanimous about all that. I remember in the early years of my practice, I'd get very upset, you know, when things would be going well and then just a crash and just felt like everything was impossible. And I get really upset and think, you know, what am I doing wrong and all of that. But after experiencing it for years, now there's just a real equanimity. You know, oh, this sitting feels like I never sat before. But I know, I know the next sitting or the next couple of sittings, it's going to pick up again. So if you have that understanding that this is the natural course of practice, then you don't get upset by the inevitable ups and downs in your practice. The plateaus can be the most challenging, in a way. Because at least with the ups and downs, you know, we're seeing things changing. <laughs> but I've gone through periods where it just felt like nothing was happening. You know, and for days. You know, not, not, it wasn't just a sitting or two sittings. It was days and days and days of just nothing is going on. And at first, you know, especially the first times I experienced those kind of plateaus, it was really difficult. It was discouraging and self-judgment and all of that. But I remember one particular time, I, this was when I was practicing in India, I was up in the mountains, it was during the summer months, and I was doing a self-retreat and going through these, one of these dry spells. Uh, and at a certain point, I, just, I gave myself a talking to. I said, Joseph, just sit and walk. Just sit and walk. That's your job. Let the Dharma take care of the rest. 
So it's just like a surrender to the Dharma. You know, I was going to do my part. And what I, I could sit and I could walk regardless of what was happening. I could just keep going. And just that simple reframing of it was tremendously helpful. So I just kept sitting and walking and sitting and walking. Now I don't remember how long it took, but at a certain point, you know, the energy built up and the momentum built up again, and it came out of the doldrums. This can happen more than once. So it's just good to recognize, yeah, this is part of the path as well. But it doesn't have to be the source of doubt or the source of discouragement. It's just part. It's part of how things unfold. And there's a way to persevere through it. And it takes perseverance. Um, You know, the Buddha... This is not an easy thing we're all doing. The Buddha likened it to swimming upstream. You know, because we're swimming against not only the current of our own conditioning, you know, which is all very strong, we're swimming against the current of the whole conditioning of our culture. <laughs> there's so many there's so many great lines from our culture. Don't let desire pass you by. <laughs> I let nothing stand in the way of my pleasure. <laughs> I mean the ads the ads are just full of this kind of condition. So we're doing something quite opposite to all that. So of course there's going to be challenges at different times. We're going to come up against you know, different patterns within ourselves. But the beauty is that there's a very clear path and a very clear methodology. And so if we just keep going, the path unfolds. So we're coming towards the end. Maybe we can finish with a couple about death. Mm. Yes. This person says... (laughs) Death, I think I'll hold this while we speak about death. (laughs) Okay. You ready? Yes. So this person says, We are about the same age, and I'm thinking more and more about death. How has death's closer proximity affected you and your Dharma practice? And then the second one, in learning to live well, it seems like we're learning to die well. Is the deepest crux of this practice to, at our time of death, be able to let go enough so that we won't be born again into this world of suffering? That sums it up pretty good. <laughs> but, so first to say that... I think I'll put this down. my experience and you know in this aging process and um, kind of the, re- the reality of it 
definitely has taken on a different uh, vividness. And just a, this is just a little personal anecdote. Uh, years ago, um, my mother was still alive, but she was in her late 80s. And, and of course, my whole life has been talking about this stuff. You know, and so she would be, you know, talking about her experience, and and I would be um, kind of acknowledging and, you know, commiserating and saying, you know, what, that I understand. And she, remember, she would just shake her head and say, "You have no idea." <laughs> <laughs> and I really didn't appreciate what she meant at the time. But now I do. <laughs> because even though we can feel it deeply at, at any age, you know, and we can really open to the truth of this, but at least in my experience, and I think with many others, you know, is it clear that the, the amount of time, because we never know, you know, when we're going to die, but at a certain age, we know it's not going to be that much longer. It really does take on a certain immediacy. And for me, it, it has really inspired um, strong motivation to do more practice. You know? and so for many years, for example, for many years, uh, in my younger years, uh, I would always do a self-retreat of a month a year. So I just built that in. And kind of in middle age, I think I'm going to do two months a year. Now in my elderly years, now I'm going to do three months a year, you know, because it just feels like the most important thing to do. So there is there is an effect, I think, you know, as as we're living into the experience. But there's another frame that I use for myself, and also I've talked about it with other people which I found really helpful. We're not dead until we're dead. So in one way, it's all the same. You know, we're in this life process, and of course what we're experiencing may change, but it's the same mind-body process going on until we're dead. So everything we're doing in our practice, in our moment-to-moment experience, is precisely what we want to be happening in the process of dying and the moment of death. To be mindful and not clinging. Every, everything that you're practicing now is the practice for dying. Uh, and that's true up until the last moment. Uh, so that also gives, to me, a, a, lot of, um, a lot of energy, you know, an inspiration for the practice to realize not only is it you know, making our lives freer now in the moment, but it's also the most significant preparation for the dying process. Uh, basically, we just want to stay mindful in the moment of what's happening. In this stage of life, when maybe thoughts of death and dying 
come more frequently, or for some people, those thoughts can come even quite young. You know, it just depends on one's particular conditioning. It's really helpful not to get lost in the story our mind is telling us. So there's a Zen story which relates to this. So there was this Zen monk living up in the mountains in some cave. And he was a great artist. And for whatever reason, he was devoting his time to painting this very intricate painting of a tiger. And it took him years, you know, and it was just so realistic. And after it was all done, as the story goes, he looked at it and became frightened. So one might think, well, that's pretty silly. We are doing the same thing with our thoughts, you know, and our fears and... All the thoughts we have about dying are painted tigers because we're actually still alive and in the moment. And we can be relating to this moment's experience and even relating to those thoughts, but seeing them as thoughts in the moment, not being pulled in to the fearful story or the anxiety story or whatever whatever it may be, it's just a, that story is a painted tiger. So if we can see that, then even if they come up as they might, you know, different people have different relationships to the idea of dying, but it's really helpful to see that they are just thoughts in the moment. And the thoughts in the moment are very workable. But if we take them to be the real tiger, you know, if we start believing or getting lost in the the content, the storyline, so then it's going to be a source of distress and unease. Uh, So this this, this whole opening to the truth, and the Buddha emphasized this so often, so I'll just, I'll close with this, reflection that the Buddha uh, offered. And he's, he's, this was so important, he suggested that this be reflected on daily. Right? And I, f- I find it so helpful, just in the midst of my daily life. So he said, this is the reflection, that what has the nature to grow old, will grow old. What has the nature to become ill, will become ill. What has the nature to die, will die. And I am not exempt. That's the kicker. Because even though, of course, intellectually we all know, so th- this is not some esoteric truth. What has the nature grow old is going to grow old and grow ill and die. This is what's 
This is the nature of things. This is what's going to happen. But I see it in myself, and I think it's not uncommon until we're really hit in the face with it. There's this underlying feeling that we are exempt, (laughs) or that if we're not exempt, we should be exempt. And I've seen, I've just seen this in myself, you know, as if these things happening are a mistake. And if somehow I had done something differently, they wouldn't happen. That's why the Buddha said a daily reflection. And it really helps me because if I'm going through the day and, I don't know, I don't feel well or something hurts or this or that, and I begin, why did that happen? I am not exempt. And it's free. It just allows me to relax. Yes, this is just the nature. you know. And so it's really quite opening and uh, supportive of greater ease. Um, so you might... After some practice, you don't even have to do the whole... Reflection, you could just, I am not exempt. <laughs> that, that sums it up. Uh, so we are not exempt together. And this whole path, and I really got inspired just when I walked in here, kind of saw the hole filled with all of you. And it's an amazing thing, you know, that you're all doing. Uh, and having done so many retreats myself, It's really rare in this world. Um, And it's essential. You know, it's essential for our own happiness and it's essential for beginning to help share that, you know, the happiness and the peace with everyone else. Um, So it's inspiring and it's really important. So thank you. Thank you, Joseph. So we can come back at nine for chanting for those who would like. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.